The Clearing is a show about crime and the trauma that can result from crime. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Last spring, we were driving around Akron, Ohio with April, following another one of her hunches. April was born in Akron and lived here in America's tire town until she was five. We were looking for things that might jar her memory. I pointed out a smokestack off in the distance. Oh, I remember that. That always gave me a clue that we were getting close to, um... I want to say, yeah, or Mara House. Forget which house. April been talking to me a lot about this other case, one we haven't covered yet, the double murder that took place here in August 1979. She didn't have any solid leads, but a number of things bothered her. There was the location. Akron is her father's hometown and the place he knew best. The M.O., two kids killed on Lover's Lane, and the month. April has this theory that her dad was most likely to kill in August. We were actually living in Florida at the time, but in August, if I'm not mistaken, we were leaving Florida and we were heading out west. And what I can't remember or can't prove, if we came up here to visit family before we ended up out west. Um, That's just kind of what we always did, but I can't prove that. This is The Clearing. I'm Josh Dean. Episode 7. He's in the water. In the course of obsessing about this case, April had been talking to a woman named Luann Eddy. Luann's brother, Ricky, was one of the two people killed in August 1979. And we'd come to Akron to see her. This little white house with the red since the door's open. Is it this house? Yeah. It had seemed like a good idea to come here. Luann's family has been trying to find out what happened to her brother Ricky Beard and his girlfriend Mary Leonard for 40 years. And when April first reached out to her, Luann was more than willing to talk. I think she and April both hoped they might be able to jog each other's memories to unearth some detail that connected April's dad to Luann's brother. Or cleared him. But once we were there, standing in Luann's living room, I started to feel a little uncomfortable. We didn't have any real evidence to offer her, and I worried that maybe we were just trespassing on someone's private grief, which explains the nervous small talk. So is the big smokestack, did that used to be the tire plant? Is that what that is? What's the giant smokestack out here? smokestack. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to say she just laughed at me. No, I'm not laughing. It's hard to hear, but Luann said that smokestack April remembered, it wasn't actually a smokestack. Have you heard of um, Ernest Angley, the televangelist? Yes, I couldn't remember. Oh, wait, yes, from the TV, the guy that used to, like, make people faint. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, so that's his church, and the tower goes with the church, but it used to be Rex Humbard's before that. Rex Humbard was a big televangelist from the 1950s through the 70s. He had a popular TV show and started building this enormous tower back in 1971 as part of his Cathedral of Tomorrow. But then there was some trouble with the SEC. Rex was apparently defrauding his flock, and he never finished it. When they first built it, it was going to be like a revolving restaurant on top, and he had all these grand ideas and then got in trouble, so it just stood there. So they call it Rex's Erection. <laughs> I didn't know that. So that's the story. That's the 
We settled down in Luann's living room. She had a folder on the coffee table full of articles about the murders and notes about possible leads that her family had collected over the years. Especially in the early days, people called all the time with tips. Luann is Ricky's oldest sister, the oldest of six kids. She and Rick, as she calls him, were four years apart. They were close. I knew some of the details of Rick's murder from news reports, but Luann explained how that terrible August night felt from the family's perspective. Rick was 19, Mary was 17. She worked at the Acme, which is the grocery store down the street. Um, she worked there and worked there that day, and they went to the drive-in movie, which is not very far up the road here from the erection. And there were other there were other couples in cars. They were teenagers. They went to the drive-in. You know, you know why they went. Um, they actually saw the Amityville Horror that night, ironically, and. Mary, because she wasn't 18, her parents, she had a curfew. She had to be home, so they didn't stay for the second movie. They went home like 11 o'clock or so. So they went home. They were sitting on Mary's porch, and that's the last anybody knows. Some of the neighbors said they saw them sitting on the porch. Mary had gone in the house and gotten lemonade. They came out. I mean... It sounds like the perfect hot summer evening. Went to the drive-in, we came home, we were drinking lemonade on the porch. And then they were gone. Her dad was the one who fretted most about the kids. Every time one of them went out, he worried and watched to make sure they got home okay. So he saw that Rick's car wasn't there, I don't know, maybe three or four in the morning. He decided he'd go look for him. So he drove by all his friends' houses, thinking if he sees his car parked somewhere... At a friend's house, he's going to think, oh, he spent the night, you know, I'll see him in the morning. But he didn't find his car anywhere. But while my dad was gone doing that, police came to the door, and they had Rick's license, his driver's license, and his wallet, and said his car was found over here on Northampton Road. And when my dad came home then, they, they called every friend they could think of. They called Mary. Mary's mom or his brother, I think it was her brother, answered the phone. My dad said, so is Mary there? Is she in bed? And they said, yeah, she's in her bed. Well, my dad said, could you go look? So they went to look, and she was not in her bed. This was really foolish on the part of the police. They let my dad and my brother go get the car. I read that today. I couldn't believe it. Like, the next day, right? So they never processed the car. Nope. Not until much later. And am I right that there was a bullet hole in the windshield? A bullet hole in the windshield, and they did nothing. And there was no blood in the car, though. That's what's so bizarre. Still, the fact that they would return a... a, I mean, that's clearly evidence, right? Right. Like, there might be something in there. Fingerprints? Yeah, they did not. They let my dad drive it home. And what's odd about it is the way that the trajectory of the bullet was like if someone was in like on the floor of the back seat of a car and shot a gun like through the driver's seat and the person sitting in the driver's seat would have gotten shot like in the shoulder blade maybe and it went out through the windshield. But no blood. blood. So it almost seemed like someone was hiding in the back seat maybe? Or they did that to throw them off the trail. Ricky's car was found about two miles from where we were sitting, 
crashed, but not hard, into the side of a small barn on what was then a country road. There was no sign of either teenager. They just vanished. As police work goes, that the car was just turned back over is egregious. And Luann thinks other things about the investigation were really shoddy or plain dumb. For some reason, they thought that my brother was involved with some motorcycle gang. He did not have a motorcycle. Biker gangs were a thing in Akron in those days, so the cops were really focused on them. And there's a motorcycle gang, like, clubhouse, very close to where the car was found. So they were trying to tie it to that, and they just wouldn't let up about that theory. But we couldn't find any evidence that that had anything to do with anything. Um, he had Rick had a dirt bike, but it, that's not a motorcycle gang thing. <laughs> like, did they think he was like owed the money or something, or like like maybe he said he would do a drug deal for him, you know? Sell because there was some pot in his car, and I mean enough for like two joints or something. At first. Even though the circumstances of Ricky and Mary's disappearance were obviously concerning, Luann and her family tried not to panic. In fact, when I found out that he was missing, I was actually at work, and my grandpa came in to where I work and told me. I was like, oh, they'll turn up. I'm sure there's a story about this. Because they always had some story to tell. And then as days went on, we realized they're, this is not their usual antics, you know? <laughs> I mean, also, I mean, not to focus too much on the car, but the bullet hole in the windshield is kind of like a big red flag that, like, they didn't yeah. just elope, which I'm sure people probably told your parents, oh, they just eloped. Right. Yeah, and they were hoping they eloped, you know, and then they said, well, is it possible Mary was pregnant and there are these good Catholic families, they're afraid to tell their parents, maybe they ran away. Do you, do you think your parents believed that, like, did they think that might have been the case? Like, at first? I think at first. I think they wanted to believe something like that. And, you know, and they were like, that's okay. They can come back. They can tell us something like that. As she was talking, Luann leaned over, started shuffling through the papers on the coffee table. I just wanted to okay. show you guys. I know we're not on TV, but these are all notes that my parents kept. Um, and you can see how yellowed they are. Because Rick and Mary were missing for six years before they were found. Six years. It wasn't until May 1985 that Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard's remains were discovered. In thick brush about a mile from the spot where the car had been found. Rick had been shot. Mary was shot and stabbed. During those six long years, Luann's family heard all sorts of rumors about sightings of the two teens. And they held out hope that somehow Ricky and Mary would still turn up alive. This is a note that... One day when I was at work, someone said they saw them in Puerto Rico. So I called my dad, and he must have made a note that somebody saw them in Puerto Rico. Just little things like that. So your parents were actively, like, trying to help in any way they could? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's the reward. Like, this one, this says, Rick supposedly stole a purse in Athens, Ohio, and Mary was watching. That didn't happen, but someone said maybe that was them, you know? So it's just little things like that. We got calls constantly. Until he died, Luann's dad kept track of every tip and rumor, no matter how far-fetched. His death really destroyed my parents. Um, my dad died two years after Rick disappeared. He was only 48. 
It just ate him alive. It just totally did. It killed him. Luann told us that her dad had heart problems. He'd had open-heart surgery just a few months before Ricky vanished. I think he had just gone back to work when Rick disappeared. And he he really struggled. Like, he he just had a hard time making it through the workday. And I think his heart problems contributed to that, but also it's Rick, he just weighed on his mind. So probably for those two years, he just never felt at peace or relaxed. Right? Yeah, he just never he just never got over it. And then, so your mom sort of left to, to carry the, you know. Yes, to carry the burden of that, yeah. And for four years then, she still didn't know, right? Her, her husband passed away, and then she still doesn't know what's happened, right? Right. right. You know, and my parents, my parents really beat themselves up because they said, you know, what did we do wrong as parents? Um, was he involved with something he shouldn't be involved with? Or, you know, did he run away? Did he purposely stay away from home? Did, you know, did anything happen? Did something happen with Mary? You know, who knows? In fact, we had, a f- after they found their remains, all they had were some bones, really. There wasn't like a body for a casket. So my mom said, you know, there's, I didn't see his body. I don't know that that's his bones in there. So she kind of was in denial about it always. The remains were discovered by a utility worker on the property of a local guy who was known to harass trespassers. Supposedly there was kind of this known um, makeout area that a lot of teenagers went to. And there was a guy who used to come out and fire a gun to scare him away. Like he didn't shoot them, but he would shoot the gun. And there were several kids who had reported that to their parents over the years. So there was a suspect for a while, right? Who, Akron, weren't they trying to... Not really, but I think this guy could possibly be the killer. Because that's where their remains were found in his yard. Luann says he even confessed at one point, but the police didn't believe him. He was mentally disturbed and wasn't considered to be reliable. And they had no physical evidence to link him either. The whole thing felt to Luann like it was part of the larger, years-long bungling of the investigation. There was one Akron cop who Luann and her family trusted, though, a guy named Bob Swain. He was charged with guarding the site where the remains were found. This is 1985. Like, he had to stay there overnight and guard the remains. There are so many heartbreaking things about this story, but that image of this cop staying up through the night to guard the remains of Ricky and Mary. I think about that a lot. I wonder sometimes if Bob Swain's life would have turned out differently if he hadn't been told to stand out there that night. He worked the case for the next 25 years, often on his own time, and he never got the breakthrough he was hoping for. Any kind of rumor or tip he heard, he would call me and he'd say, I heard this, or did you know this person, or do you remember this incident? A lot of it I didn't. I, I didn't live at home then, and, you know, I was 23, he was 19. Our lives were not intersecting, and I didn't, I didn't really know his friends very well. But, you know, so sometimes Bob would call and ask me something, and I have to call one of my brothers and say, do you remember this person? And I have to call Bob back. And so Bob was on it. He never felt that the motorcycle gang had anything to do with it. He told me that over and over again. He said, I've looked into that. He said, I cannot find anything 
that makes me think your brother was involved with the motorcycle gang. He had a lot of theories, but he said, you know, I was a rookie cop. Nobody listened to me. They didn't care what I said about it. Many years later, I had many conversations with Bob Swain, you know, and I would say, well, tell me what happened. Somebody dropped the ball somewhere. And he'd be like, I can't, you know, as long as I work for the Akron police, I can't say. So I don't know. And I don't want to accuse the police of anything. I just think they didn't give it enough attention. Like Luann, Swain was willing to try basically anything that might lead to a breakthrough in the case. In 2006, he even joined her on a TV show called Sensing Murder that used psychics to help solve cold cases. Here's Swain on the show, talking about his interaction with one of the psychics. I told her we had a 27-year-old double homicide case that had not been solved. She immediately started telling me things that gave me goosebumps. She came up with their names, the description of them, the description of the scene where their remains were found, right down to the point where she said she heard a train whistle. And in fact, 30 or 40 feet away from where their bodies were found, there is a railroad track. That was a rare thing the psychics actually got right. Early in the show, one of them holds up Ricky's boot and conjures the scene around the murder. Pretty much everything she says is wrong. It's just very strange, because all I'm getting is image of his, like, legs, like wearing shorts or something. Does that mean anything to you? I mean, is there a reason I'm seeing him wearing shorts? It means nothing to me. Okay. He wasn't wearing shorts. It wasn't that Swain or Luann or anyone in the family thought the psychics would reveal Ricky's killer, but they figured anything that brought attention to the case was a good thing. My mother was still alive then, and she witnessed us taping the show and everything, and it was very difficult for her. And then the night that it aired for the first time, you know, we all we were all with my mom and made sure she didn't watch it alone. And But amazingly, she then said, well, I don't know why this has never been on Dateline or 2020. And I'm like, I thought you wouldn't want that, <laughs> you know? As Luann talked, April sat in the corner looking through the files. April, you just made a face over there. What? I just read something in these notes that struck me. Um, this is on 11-12. See, Ohio State Patrolman who works with North something PD says Rick and Mary disappeared. He followed Rick's car in a van west on Portage Trail approximately 10, 10 p.m. We're going slow. A car in a van. Anyway, the thing that caught me was that a car and a van that was following it. What did my dad drive? A green O'Connell-line van. Oh, I did not know that. April would like to help Luann and herself by proving there's some connection between her father and this crime. So she's on the lookout for signals in the noise. And this signal, the van, it's tantalizing. But it doesn't actually prove anything. Vans were popular in the 70s. Still, it's something. A detail cops should probably know. There's another detail April keeps bringing up. She has this vague memory that someone from Ricky or Mary's family babysat her and her siblings back when they lived in Akron. She's not certain about it. Like so many things, it exists in a pretty thick haze. And Luann doesn't know either. But it did come up with Mary Leonard's brother. He didn't want to talk to us, but recently told a local journalist that he thought this was possible. 
As April and Luann talked, you could feel their mutual hope that one or the other of them might remember something, that April might see some connection in Luann's decades-old papers, or Luann's memories would be jarred by April's vague recollections. Luann has thought about Edward Wayne Edwards before. In 2010, she read in the paper that he'd confessed to the murders in Norton, Ohio. That's about a half hour away. I called the police that day. I saw it in the paper, and I called, and I said, can this be related to Rick and Mary? Oh, no, 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 no. But Swain thought it was. So Bob Swain, like John Canterbury and Brian Johnston, went up to Wisconsin to interview Edwards in prison. When Swain questioned him, Ed swore up and down that he had nothing to do with the murders. He told Brian Johnson the same thing on one of those calls Brian recorded when he was trying to get Ed to confess to murdering Danny Boy. I just wish the hell I was in a position to help Bob Swain with his, and I don't. I, I, I know nothing about him. You know what? You want to help Bob? Bob's on my side. Help me help Bob. He and I are friends now. Yeah, well, anyways, I can't help him because I don't know anything about his friends. I hear you. Hey, listen, Wayne. Right now, we're night. We're... On October 21st, 2014, Bob Swain killed himself. He left behind a wife and five kids and took with him really any hope Luann had of this case being cracked. If anyone was going to solve the murders of Rick and Mary, or find a link to Ed Edwards, it was Swain. He was an awesome man. I, I mean, I was devastated when he died. I really was. Do you have any idea? If, did this have anything to do with it? Did, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. And is it fair to say that, aside from him, there hasn't been a lot of action at Akron over the years? It's fair to say, yes. After the break, April tries to kick up a little more action. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. Making a great customer experience is as simple as three letters, A-P-I. With Vonage's voice and video APIs, customers can tap to call from your app or website, or make it even more personal with a video call. They can also stop bots and hackers in their tracks with two-factor authentication, powered by Vonage's Verify API. It's effortless. Elevate your customer experience with Vonage Communications APIs. Try it for free, or learn more at vonage.com Spotify. Blue balls. It's the idea that your balls will hurt if you get aroused, but don't ejaculate. Like an anvil being attached to my scrotum by, like, safety pins. But could this all be a lie to pressure someone into having sex? We fell down the rabbit hole. This is crazy to me. It's unprecedented. There's nothing like it in medicine. And uncovered one big secret. You're telling me that I've had blue balls this entire time? <laughs> Listen to Science versus Blue Balls, free on Spotify at Science VS. As a kid, Justine loved her dad's stories. There was the time he robbed a bank armed only with flowers, or the time he broke out of prison and went on Jeopardy. I went $17,000. I kicked ass. And I'm on a plane at the L.A. airport, and they drive me off the plane. But were any of his stories actually true? On the heavyweight episode Justine, I find out. And the truth is wilder than I could have ever imagined. Listen for free on Spotify. When we left off, we were talking with Luann Eddy. 
Her brother Ricky Beard was murdered in 1979, and April thinks there's a chance that this is another murder her dad could have done. Luann's house is very close to where April lived, up until kindergarten. April remembers the name of the street she lived on, but not the address. After leaving Luann's, we went to look for that house. It was like the time we'd gone looking for Silver Creek Park and the crime scene that April's dad had led them to. We were tracking her memories again, and they're not quite as dialed in as Google Maps. She was still nagged by the idea that someone in Ricky or Mary's family had babysat her, and we wanted to see just how close she'd lived to the Beard and Leonard families. We drove up and down the street a few times as April narrowed the options. Hold on, slow down a second. No, it's not that one. Like, this might be it. She texted her mom to see if she recalled the address. A bit later, her mom wrote back. April's memory was right again. She'd picked the exact house. Later, I mapped out the distance from her place to the Beard and Leonard homes. All right, so this is the distance from your house to the Beard family. Which is walking distance. What is that? Not even a mile. 0.7 miles. But if nothing else, you guys lived in like literally the same neighborhood. So now let me do the other address. Exact same distance, 0.7 miles. Different 0.7 miles, but exact same distance. Mm So, yeah, I mean, it's we always end up kind of in the same spot, which is like, God, there's a lot of weird coincidences. And I feel like we know a little bit more than we knew before, but yet we're probably no closer to actually definitively proving anything. We're like constantly circling the airport and we'll never be able to land. I know, but, you know, I know you need hard evidence, but how many stinking coincidences can there possibly be? Before we left Akron, we wanted to try the cops one more time because the truth is we needed their help. It's incredible when citizens or podcasters end up solving cases. It's also incredibly rare. The norm is more like this. People have hunches. They see links. And yet have no idea if what they're thinking and seeing is actually useful. Without access to police files and interviews, it's just really hard to tell. There was a detective April had spoken to a few months earlier. His name's Dave Whidden. So we figured, we're here. Why not try and see him? Find out what he knows. So we deployed our secret weapon. We pulled up to Akron PD headquarters and sent April in. It's a large building right downtown. Looks like the kind of place that would have many gatekeepers. I told Jonathan I gave April virtually no chance of even making it to the detective's floor. Five minutes later, I got a text. They're sending me up. Fifteen minutes after that, she was back. Well, you got further than I did. You got upstairs. (laughs) I got upstairs to the desk. At first, they weren't going to... All he said was, uh, as soon as I walked in, they're like, I don't think he's here. I haven't seen him all day. April wasn't having it. Eventually, they sent her to another floor. I said, all I'm here is I want to talk to Lieutenant Dave Whitten. I said, I don't understand why he won't at least respond to my emails. I said, if my dad was not involved in this murder, that's okay. I'm fine with that. I'd like to prove it one way or the other. In fact, yeah. Arguably, it's a better result for you if your dad did not. I mean, like finding out that that he had definitely killed two more people isn't necessarily good news. Um, all right. Well, I mean, I guess the only thing we can hope is that, like, now he takes it more seriously and actually calls you back. 
The reality is, we'll probably never know whether Ed Edwards killed Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard. And we may never know exactly what Akron PD knows either. It isn't that they don't care. It's that it's not a priority for them. Akron's a big city. In 2018, Akron police reported 36 murders. No detective has the luxury of devoting much time to a 40-year-old case. That reality seemed to weigh on April. And it weighed on me and Jonathan, too. After we left Luann's house, we sat in the parked car and talked for a while. I'm kind of exhausted, mentally exhausted, like I get after all these interviews. But this one seems a little bit more, I don't know, mentally. Do you feel like you know were helpful or not helpful? That's how I always feel. I'm like, was that helpful or not helpful? I'm not sure. I'm a little frustrated, especially after seeing that note about the van. Because I know we'll probably never find out anymore. It was a retired police officer. This was 40 years ago. The police station is no longer even in existence. They didn't even have the notes that she had given them recently. I mean, what's that can tell you right there? So they're a little frustrated, maybe. How do you get affected by this, Jonathan? Um, I don't know. I mean, it all it all feels much more real to me just the 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 reality of of how precarious life is you know um and uh josh is probably the same like it is our job to try and know things and to figure things out and those are the stories we tell and often if there is a a story that you can't figure out you don't tell it you put it aside and I, I feel like I'm I'm coming to terms more with knowing that um, a lot of people live in the world not ever knowing the answers to the, the biggest questions they have in their life, mm-hmm. you know? It's learning to come to terms with that and living with that. As dejected as we all felt, there's one more thing that happened while we were sitting in Luann's living room. It really stuck in my mind and is, I think, worth sharing. This had nothing to do with evidence or timelines or hunches. Instead, it was something happening in the air between Luann and April. They seemed to find in each other someone who was willing to sit with all that grief and confusion. Someone who could actually understand it. I was reading your dad's notes here, and he, like every entry, there's just extensive writing until on April 13th, 1980, he writes four words. Mary is 18 today. Oh. And that's it. That's all he writes. It's, it's present tense, too. She is 18. She is 18 yeah. today. Yes. Yeah. That would have been less than a year after they disappeared. I should share this one, but my dad, when my dad was on his deathbed, he he really suffered, and they had called and said, your dad took a turn for the worse. Well, you know what that means. So I got there, and keep in mind, I'm 25 years old, you know. Um, he He was lying there, and he was kind of glazed over, and he said, he was calling Rick, and he said, he he needs me. He's in the water. He's in the water. And and I need to go. I need to go. He needs my help. And I I I was so young at at night. You know, when you're 25, you don't think about that stuff. 
it was many years later before I went, oh, my God, Rick was calling him over. And my dad had just felt like Rick was in distress for all this time, and he needed to help him. He wanted to help him. I'm not sure I should have shared that, but you guys are bringing it out at me. (laughs) On the wall across from where I was sitting, Loanne had hung a series of family photos. Most of them were her girls, triplets, and also their children. Loanne's three daughters were born in 1983, four years after Ricky disappeared. And the arrival of so many babies all at once, it injected some joy into a family that badly needed it. You know, that's one of the things that I think about. Rick didn't get to see this. These are all people that were born after he was gone. And and he didn't get to have children, and he didn't get to have grandchildren. And he didn't get to love all these other people. Luann said that Ricky's murder affected her as a parent years later when her own kids had become teenagers. Every time they walked out the door, she'd think, my God, what if they don't come home? April nodded. She understood completely. You just said something that um, you said how every time your teenagers left, you know, walked out the door, that you wondered if they would come back when my children were teenagers, that's when I really started um, thinking about the possibility of what my father did and thinking about the grief that, as a parent, what they have gone through and couldn't imagine that, you know, you know, going through that as a parent. You lost a loved one. I didn't, but... But you did, yeah. Really, well, and April, I, I, I can't even imagine what it feels like to be you. And I, I thank you for everything you've done for every family, even if it doesn't end up solving our case. It's remarkable what you've done. Do you really equate the? the loss of your brother and, and what April has had to deal with with, with her father? Are, are they, they feel like similar losses to you? Yes, because she lost the whole idea of a father that was there for her. And yeah, I, I think it is. Um, not that he deserves sympathy, but she does. She didn't put herself in that situation. She can't help it what her father did. So here's Luann, no closer to knowing who killed her brother, and April, still uncertain of exactly what her father did. Um, It seems even more unlikely that you would know and that you would know that it was April's dad. But let's go there. Okay. (laughs) Let's just, what, what would that mean? I, gosh, I don't know. I would have a lot more gratitude toward April for, for having the courage to come out with it 
and really push it, even though I had questioned it, in the, you know, many years ago. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just really don't know. I, I do want to know why. Usually in cases like this, there's no sane reason. The, the reasons right. are usually, they don't make sense to us. You know, supposedly the reasons why my dad killed the other victims, to you and I, they don't make sense. Did you ever talk to your dad about it? No. No, it's something I regret to this day. My dad didn't. Did you want to? At the time, no. But right before he passed, um, I was starting to to think about talking to him, that I wanted to go down and visit and talk to him. Um, but hadn't gotten up enough courage to do that. Um, and my dad did reach out to me in his way of reaching out, or crazy way of reaching out, but he did reach out to me. The way April's dad reached out to her, he sent her a scrap of paper with his autograph on it, along with a one-sentence note that read, hold on to this. It's going to be worth a lot of money someday. She threw it away. And then he passed. So... Never happened. Do you think he was remorseful before he passed? Remorseful that he got caught. Okay. Remorseful that he committed the crimes? No. He, no, I don't think he was remorseful. Luann said that over the last 40 years, there have been moments when she's felt a kind of clarity about what happened to Rick. Not that she had the evidence, but she just felt sure. That clarity would comfort her temporarily. And then she'd learn something else. She'd hear some detail that maybe seemed significant. And whatever certainty she felt would fall away. Like, was the green van valuable? You know, maybe. But who knows? Who knows? You know, I just, I just want somebody who knows to tell the truth. And maybe, maybe the truth has already died. April and Luann hugged as we were leaving. They promised to keep in touch. Thank you so much. I am going to close those, so I'll, I'll close them. Okay. Next week, we go back to where the story started, and the air gets a little clearer for April. It's the final episode of The Clearing. The Clearing is a production of Pineapple Street Media, in association with Gimlet. It's produced by Jonathan Menhivar and me. I'm Josh Dean. Our associate producers are Josh Gwynn, Dina Kleiner, and Elliot Adler. Editing by Joel Lovell. Our fact checker is Ben Phelan. Our theme song is Modafinil Blues by Matthew Deere. Music clearance by Anthony Roman. The episode was mixed by Hannes Brown and Jonathan Menhivar. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. See you next week.
It's been a while since we sat together in my office. So basically, he rarely has a conversation with you alone. He does, but then I go to my mom, and I go to my brother and my grandmother, and I tell everyone. Yeah, so he doesn't. Yeah. When he talks to you, he hears a cacophony. The new season of Where Should We Begin is out now. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. Spotify.